0: You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 143. Today's show is a broadcast of the Financial Independence Book Club, brought to you in collaboration with Utopia Dreamscape. We discuss the little book of common sense investing by Jack Bogle. We talk about minimizing fees, index fund investing, compounding and asset allocation, and simplicity in investing, including the concept of Occam's razor. I want to thank Boisson for providing this month's prize of non-alcoholic spirits. You can enter to win that care package by following all three of us on Instagram and commenting on the post about this episode. Links to our Instagram pages are in the show notes. And without further ado, let's get to the show.
1: You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth.
0: Welcome, everybody, and thank you for being here for the April Book Club, our fourth book. Can't wait to hear about this one because I will admit I only finished half of it. So, So I'm going to be learning a lot today. To begin, I'm just going to hand you right off to Amy Deluxe for the introduction.
1: Hello. Thank you, everyone, for joining. So excited to be here, as always. I'm coming to you today from Frankfurt, Germany. So I finally get to be in the later time zone than Ethan and all the New Yorkers. Um, I've always been the early bird here, so that's exciting. Um, But yeah, thanks, everybody, for coming. And the Financial Independence Book Club is, you know, it's a great way to help everybody learn. Our vision is financial literacy for creatives. Our mission is to create a transparent forum and inclusive community to propel creatives and art workers into financial security because everyone deserves prosperity. And I so fully believe in that mission. And I'm so excited that we get to come together and learn over these books to Together. So that's so exciting. We love to give out prizes every month. And last month, we did our first social media giveaway, which was really exciting. We had a package of previs um, from Sovereign Candle and a couple things like that. And our winner was Janessa Harris from the March book club, Get Good With Money. Janessa wrote a comment uh, that they loved Emily's takeaway about financial wholeness being accessible to anyone ready to take on the fundamentals and really appreciated the episode of uh, Artistic Finance and thanking us for all that we do here. So, thank you and congratulations. This month, we have some swag from Boisson. Boisson is a non-alcoholic beverage company, and we're going to learn more about that when I introduce our lovely host. The gift is valued at $75, and they have incredible, delicious, wonderful non-alcoholic beverages, mocktails, however you want to call it. So we're really excited about that. We're going to do another social media giveaway. And so if you join the live, you get already an extra points to your submission and then anybody can join by entering to win for liking the post that we'll post after this episode following artistic finance utopia dreamscape and boisson sips on Instagram and then commenting your favorite part of the book or your favorite takeaway mentioned by Karima on the broadcast So now I'd like to just introduce the book very quickly. Uh, This month's book was The Little Book of Common Sense Investing by John C. Bogle. Bogle was the OG disruptor. Index funds did not exist. Uh, He brought them into the market and he was up against the entire industry when he introduced them to the market. So we're going to learn all about that with this book review. uh, But it just gives you a little context of how this book about index and investing is a little bit different than some of the other books that we've read. So this is going to be a very interesting discussion. And now I'd like to introduce Karima Gotchalk. And I'm so excited because we have a wonderful little origin story. And this actually feels a bit like a reunion with Ethan and Karima, because we actually met when I was coming back from Europe the last time in December on New Year's Eve, and we met in a pub around the corner from Ethan, and Nicole was there as well, uh, and we all met there. And so Karima and I hit it off instantly. We were chatting about investing and funds and just all kinds of other great stuff, because She's a wonderful human being. We just stayed in touch and then now we get to have her here. She is a natural leader and creative problem solver. She works as the chief brand officer at Poisson, which is a startup and retailer wholesaler of non alcoholic beverage options. She's a 20 year New Yorker, although imminently moving to LA. So, very excited for that. And she can divide her creative career career into two decades the first was fashion design, and the second has been in advertising. Without further ado, welcome, Karima. Thanks for being here and welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And I actually think it's really funny also, um, and I don't know if you remember when we met because it was right after the new year and I was about to do my yearly kind of reorganizing of all my finances. And I reread through Financial Freedom by Grant Sabatier. So I was actually doing like my FIRE homework. And I was taking a reading break to go have a beer. And I bumped into you and you, I think you were saying, like, what were you doing today? I was like, oh, I'm reading this book. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I know all about this. So it was just so fortuitous and, you know, such a cool chance meeting there. So um, anyways, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's interesting because... I know this is the Artistic Finance Podcast, and a lot of times I'll argue that I'm not an artist. I feel, I almost felt like, do I deserve to be here among, you know, president company? I always say an artist gets a blank page, you know, a blank canvas, and they're very excited to fill it with, like, their vision and their idea. And I'm more of a creative where, like, I need... I need a problem to solve, so it's like I don't want the, brain, the blank sheet. I want blank sheet and like what you need out of it, and that's how I've always operated in the creative space. So like I can draw. I do have. I I went to Parsons. I have a BFA and all of that, but I never feel like I'm a true artist. I'm like, oh, I'm I'm very. I'm also very left and right brain. I'm very analytical. Like split down the middle. Like I love spreadsheets. I love like planning and time blocking and all of that. So I kind of feel like. I'm not a true, true artist. So like- Wait,
0: I just want to say, because that's hilarious. <laughs> and the other thing is, like, if I only had artists on here, that would be so exclusive. So, like, you know, non-artists are people, too. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, it's so funny because I do lighting, right? And so, like, I don't know how to draw. I mean, I okay, I took years of it in, like, arts schooling. But, like, I don't know how to draw. And I use computers only. So I also like never feel like an artist, even though people who like see the work are like, oh, blah, blah, blah. So when you were like 10 years in fashion and went to Parsons, I'm like, oh, wow, I'll never be as artistic as Karima. (laughs) I
1: super identify with your like left brain, right brain thing, because I know that we're really in our society, we're really driven to go one way or the other. And I really forced myself to try to do that in my earlier years. And then I took like a couple of like online personality tests. And it's like, you're even brained. And I was like, well, now that makes sense. When I get too far down the creative, I like crave structure, and if I go too far down the structure and analytical, then I crave you know the freedom of creative. So I think that's a really real thing, and I think it actually makes you even a better artist. I mean, look at Michelangelo, right? I mean, it just it definitely has a place.
0: I, I also want to read the comments, which people are saying non artist here, lol, super non artist here as well. Art is everywhere. You have a BFA. You sound very artistic.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love all the support. (laughs) Everyone's an artist in some way and creative in some way. So I, yeah, we shouldn't, but I think actually, Amy, that's probably why we also clicked having that like left and right. And I also will agree that my career path switched a career like halfway through my time in New York so far and being able to be successful. And I guess to say, okay, I'm in the, it feels so silly to say, but like I'm in the C-suite now, although it's a startup. So it feels like not as real as like, I'm not, you know, at JP Morgan in the C-suite or something, but I feel that success is accredited to being able to balance the analytical with the creativity, because you need to have that platform to support the work that you do a lot of times. And I think that's also kind of what you're doing here and what you've been saying that even if it feels like you're selling out or that it's not a part of being artistic to care about money but you need money to survive you need money to make your art and and share it or do what you want with it like it is really important to have that balance and i think what you guys are doing here is really awesome to empower people to like tap into that side of them even if they don't think that they have it so um and yeah i guess so i yeah i did the fashion thing and now i'm um at boisson and so uh whoever does win the giveaway we do a we're I would say kind of like the Sephora of non-alcoholic. So we're the the larger, we hold all the the best products and then there is non-alcoholic wine, beer, spirits, aperitifs, um, mixers and all of that. And there's so much that you can kind of explore and play with, even if you still drink alcohol. It could be like a night or day off, or it could be something to mix with what you're drinking. So I could even work with the winner to customize what the what they're getting in their goodie bag based on their um, taste, or I can just do a total grab bag. So I just wanted to throw that in there.
0: Okay. I'm going to loop back to this later on because I have opinions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And I just want to say also, I felt it was serendipitous that we met because Amy's like, oh, at the bar. So I go to the bar. But at the time, right, Nicole was pregnant in solidarity with her. We hadn't been drinking. And now that she's breastfeeding, we're still not drinking. So I actually have purchased a lot of this non alcoholic stuff. I've actually been a consumer of Wesson.
2: <laughs> oh, gosh, I love that.
0: Yeah. So, like, so we've, we've, I've now been through like, was it 10 months of like non alcoholic? And I still have at least five months going with me. So, like, I have all the non alcoholic cocktail materials. I can make non alcoholic Aperol spritz. I mean, I'm an expert at this stuff. So anyway, I just love that you're here.
2: And your your story is very common. That's actually how one of the co-founders, his wife, and, you know, they were trying to get pregnant, also going through that process. A lot of times you can't drink during it. And so it was a solidarity moment. So you're you're not alone in that experience, which is really nice. Just because I love talking about fatherhood.
0: Yes, actually, I will say back up from the nine months of being pregnant, the process you can't be drinking either. So actually I said 10 months. Yeah. It's been probably closer to two years.
2: Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. There's a, that, that common commonality there. It's awesome. Should I, I'll jump into the book then. I mean, I can talk about, yeah. I could talk shop all day. But. <laughs> okay.
1: Let's check out this book.
2: Let's check out the book, which is so funny when I've been mentioning it, I, I can't not even get the book title, right. Which is ridiculous. <laughs> so people are like, well, what book are you reading? I'm like, it's the common sense book. No, it's, the little book of common sense investing, but no, it's fabulous. It's a fabulous resource, but we all have all had like kind of a similar experience with just like the density of it. So my summary of it is John Bogle, lovingly known by those who know as St. Jack is a founder of Vanguard Group, which I'm sure many people have heard of and pioneer of the index fund. An index fund is a portfolio of stocks or bonds designed to mimic the composition and performance of a financial market index. When we say the word index, it's just a comprehensive list of something that exists. In his book, Bogle goes into meticulous detail to explain not only how and why index funds work, but how they work better than other financial instruments like mutual funds, for example. The simplicity of the mathematical principles of the index fund is its strength and beauty and very importantly provides an accessible way for the common person who wants to invest to make the soundest decision with their money. So my first her takeaway is this book is a long-winded explanation to a simple, although super valuable concept. So no shade, it is very valuably pioneered. And, you know, Amy, we were talking about how you you're, you feel very passionately about that, the origin story of how, you know, John Bogle really being kind of this renegade in the finance world. But, you know, if you're reading it now, especially coming from not a finance background, it might seem very overwhelming. The entire book is summarized in the first page of the... This is all my opinion. Obviously, it's my takeaway. The f- entire book is summarized in the first page of the introduction. Quote, the winning strategy for investing in stocks is to own all of the nation's publicly held businesses at very low cost and hold it forever. However, I understand that Bogle is writing from the perspective of a financial finance professional. So he's going to depth to answer any objections, speculations, or questions that anyone including a highly knowledgeable finance professional may have. He is thoroughly proving his point. But if you're someone who is new to these concepts in the first place and is more interested in applying the best approach to your own investment portfolio than being proven through minutia why it's the best approach, you might find this book dry or overwhelming. My second takeaway is simplicity is better, and anyone or anything that tries to convince you otherwise is costing you. Uh, They mention, I think it's OCAM's razor. I'm not sure exactly how to say OCCAM, but they mention OCAM's razor, which is when there are multiple solutions to a problem, choose the simplest one. And I think that's great life advice. Um, Definitely something. Even at work, you see often where you're like, why are we overcomplicating things? Why are we having these (laughs) so many meetings? Why are we doing this? I love that just concept. And I think even listening to your past episodes, people often have brought up the simplicity is better when you're approaching your finances, um, especially as just a common person, just trying to grow their wealth while also doing what else they love and supporting their life. So um, in the beginning of the book, they talk, they tell the story of this parable in chapter one, the idea of the helpers in the parable is in essence echoed in chapters four, five, six, and eight. That being the more you mess around trying to game the system of the market, the more you will just lose money through fees, taxes, and most ironically, actual losses on your holdings. I was particularly horrified when I read about how the mutual funds eat into your dividends and that all those Advisory fees would just eat all of your dividend income. So, even if your stocks are being invested in, I forget what they call it, the the specifically the high performing stocks that pay you dividends, you should be getting that money. That money should be being invested back into your portfolio. But instead, the mutual fund fees can eat e up to even hundred percent of those dividend incomes. So you're losing so much just by paying someone to do better with your money, supposedly, allegedly. To add insult to injury, Bogle has you consider the magic of compounding and how much more you're losing over time when those monies are not simply sitting in your pool compounding. We love compounding. It's magical. To take away from it at all, you know, you're know, you really gonna see those numbers add up over time. And I think when you're reading this book, he makes very clear examples of you know even 1% or 2% extra fees happening over time. You lose so much money by the time you know, you're know you getting ready to retire also too, the fees themselves are compounding as well if you think about how much money they're taking um, from you over time. So I thought that was a really great takeaway there, just keeping things simple instead of feeling like you need to buy into all of these um, special financial instruments to make you money that you'll get offered oftentimes when you're looking at retirement options, retirement investment options. The third takeaway in the long run, your overall asset allocation between stocks and bonds is more important than which particular funds you hold. That I thought was really cool. I think when you're new to investing, when the stock market seems kind of mystical to you, you feel, especially if you watch any movies about people on Wall Street, you feel like there's like this magical formula of understanding which stocks to invest in and all like this like game that you have to try to figure out. When really, Vogel's point is, it's actually not the particular stocks that you're holding. It's your allocation between stocks and bonds. And then again, you're betting on the entire index of them all. just knowing that as you get closer to when you're younger and you're accruing funds, you want to take a little bit more risk. As you get older and you're going to be spending and needing that money soon, you lower your risk. And that actually goes into kind of the next part of this um, in my conclusion. But before I, I, I skip ahead to that, This whole asset allocation um, principle, this belief, he proves a point, has been held even by this man, Benjamin Graham, in his 1949 book, The Intelligent Investor, which I've seen a lot of reference to in other financial um, independence books I've read, even to the 1986 study that found that asset allocation accounted for 94% of the differences in total returns achieved by institutionally managed pension funds. So that's just a staggering number. And my overall conclusion is The Little Book of Common Sense Investing is slightly a misnomer, in my opinion, because although it is a little book in size, it's a long essay on an essential, simple investment strategy. I would rename the book. I'm not quite sure what it is, which is sad because I am, of many things, a copywriter (laughs) from my advertising days. So I should have had a name, a new name um, at the ready, but maybe I'll come back to that. But I would say, um, to its credit, it certainly is a time and fact-proven resource book, Proving the why behind the best advice out there for all investors, which is invest in the market as a whole and personalize your asset allocation based on your risk tolerance. And if you want to kind of skip ahead to like knowing what that risk tolerance is and how to figure it out, um, on page two hundred and thirty, they have these four questions, which I thought really simply um, helped you figure out like what works for you and what you can tolerate at your you know position in life. So that is my my little spiel on the book.
1: Awesome. Everything that you said is just kind of really spot on. This book has been on my list for so long because he literally is the person that created index funds, which is my main investment strategy. Uh, outside of that, my strategy is real estate. So I don't really do much else with the market. I'm going to set it and forget it. And I'm fully like VTSAX is like my favorite fund. It's the Vanguard All Market Index. For a long time on my financial journey, I just kept like, I can't believe I haven't read the book by the guy that created the whole thing. That is basically what I do. And I also was wondering, like, why is J.L. Collins from the Simple Path of Wealth like considered the grandfather of fire and investment strategies? And why is Vicki Robbins always looked to as like kind of the pivotal moment? Her book, Your Money or Your Life, is kind of one of these pivotal moments in the financial independence movement. Um, But now that I've read the book, I, I agree it's it is. It's very data driven and it's very mathy. And it's really it is because if you look at the time that he was writing this and when he was even creating the index fund, he was going against all of the entire financial industry. Nobody agreed with him to share the wealth. Nobody agreed that everybody should be able to have access and that it should be easy to understand. And even today, the finance industry largely is. You know about hiring people to, to do this. And they, oh, it's just one or 2%. And whenever I'm trying to explain index funds to someone that is new on their financial independence journey and how powerful it is and how foolproof it is, it really comes down to this idea of it being the full stock market index, meaning basically in this fund, if you have all of the companies, you basically become a shareholder of all of the top companies, like the S&P 500, the top 500 companies as an example, always a good example. So you become a shareholder of the top 500 companies. And what happens when a company fails? Well, it's no longer in the index and it's replaced with something that's succeeding. And that's why it always has such a high return rate because nothing stays in the index if it's not succeeding. So that's kind of what he was trying to do. And even though it is dry, I think it's really valuable to understand, you know, in depth of how the indexing works. But there is that context of he was up against the entire industry at the time and nobody
2: nobody wanted to hear it. So I love knowing I didn't catch that part about him. I didn't realize he was getting so much pushback when he was pioneering this idea. Is it partially because it does look out for the common man or, you know, I mean, he does go into all of the mathematical reasons why it works and why every, what everyone else was doing was just kind of like running around in circles and wasting time. And I, I think it's just so interesting about so much about the Wall Street world is they make money on the fees and like the business of what they're doing, like charging their services to just do what they do. If you just pull back from that from a second, it's like, as long as the like there is an economy and there are businesses doing business, Somebody, you know, there is a profit to be gained on and like, you do not need to get caught up in that kind of um, rat race of trying to bet against which is the best one. And that, I thought that was interesting. He's like, it's, if you try to go in and start betting on particular socks, you're gambling, you're gambling against the system. And we all know that in Vegas, the house always wins. So, just bet on the house, make, you know, align yourself with the house and don't try to go at the table and start trying to beat individual games, especially for this particular group of people. Where, if we're saying as artists and creatives, that's just not my passion or my specialty or my knowledge, don't do something you don't understand. I mean, I think that's with anything in investing. Like when people talk about crypto or this and that, if you don't understand something, don't put your money into it. Keep things simple because you don't want to lie in bed at night thinking, I'm not really sure. You know, my friend told me this was a safe investment, but I don't even know what it means. Like at least you want to be able to trust your gut on things. So I just think it's really cool. And I have heard it over and over again, you know, mostly over the years since, I don't know, I think like last hundred years, the market overall has grown. You get 7% return. You know, you'll have years where there's lower years and you have higher years, but like the mean is about 7%. So if you're going to set it and forget it, and you're letting your money grow over, you know, next 40 or whatever years, you can generally see that it's probably going to go about 7% overall. And that's a better investment than a lot of these like individual, you know, stocks that you see people betting on. And then you're getting the fees on top of it too. So it's, it's very calming. You know, look, like there's something very, <laughs> like, you know, about it.
1: the worst thing for it was when I see someone that pulls all of their money out when there's a downturn. The whole point is the long-term, the buy and hold strategy, because like you said, it's a mean. It, it It's going to always go up and down. If, you're, if you only stay in when it's up and then you pull out when it's down, then you are guaranteed to lose money. In fact, I always say that, it's the only store that when there's a sale people yeah. like don't buy <laughs> like the, when the market is down yeah. it's literally a sale like all, everything is cheaper you can get your foot in the door you can get more you know financial advisors and and people that are money, money managers you know you'll often hear people say oh i just let uh, you know this company do it it's it's only 1 or 2% but when we think about that compounding like 1, per, one or 2% is an enormous amount of money when you're when you buy, if you can learn this simple strategy of index funds where you've you're encapsulating everything, you know, I think Vanguard, I don't haven't looked at it in a while, but it's like 0.003%. It's literally just an admin fee. It, it's an enormous difference. It sounds like it's not a lot, um, but it is an enormous difference. And 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 also they they don't always get it right because if they're they're doing it based on speculation,
2: nobody can predict what the market is going to do. If they could then why would they bother to do it for anyone but themselves? You, you know, like the, the it feels so manufactured to have that business at all. And I don't want to speak out of turn. I'm not a, a finance professional, but it just seems that if it wasn't anything but speculation and there wasn't such a risk of, we know that we're going to get it wrong, probably 50-50 wrong and right. If you had like an 80% always going to get this right, That group of people wouldn't be managing for anyone at all, but themselves, most likely. Like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make a lot of logical sense that there's this group of human beings who totally always understand what's going to always win in the market and their services are up for sale. If that were so, they're probably just not just going to go live on an island somewhere. Why are they working? (laughs) You know, like they're just going to get their thing in the market. So this makes so much more sense to me. Um, And I feel like it would for, you know, a lot of readers that pull back and trust in the overall success of, as you said, the best 500 companies. And I thought, you know, I haven't finished my um, kind of rebalancing and relooking at all of my investment stuff. I need to clean things up and kind of consolidate some of my um, 401ks and, and just look at my asset allocation again. But I did, you can have some fun you can even there's index funds on like international you can you, if you're like feeling funny about you know the American stock market there's indexes for just the the global one so I do have like a little bit of balance of between like my stock index for both international and domestic and then same thing with my bonds so it, it, it's kind of fun and it's just very simple you're just like basic 100 of my pie. 80%'s going here, 20%'s going there, and that's it. And you set it and forget it. And it, it really is great. And then when you look up the fees, which so the book I love, Financial Freedom, Grant Sabatier, he was saying, go in and look at all your investment accounts and see what your fee is. And anything that's over, and I think it's like 0.05, you get rid of it. You know, and like you don't want anything, 1% is way too much. You need to really cut it down it's not going to be worth it. That money compounding for you is way more worth than some manager possibly gaming the system right that year. Like, Just let your money grow on its own. And it's kind of a pain to go in there and try to find... They don't make it easy for you to find where those fees are. So like, just take a day, make it like a Sunday activity where I'm just going to go through all my accounts and find it. But once you find the good accounts you'll get it. And I have to say the Vanguard index ones are wonderful. Like I am going to actually consolidate some of my other accounts all into Vanguard because I just see it actually growing better than my other investment portfolio pieces.
0: Taking a break from the interview to mention how you can win this month's prize. Go to Instagram and follow Artistic Finance, Utopia Dreamscape, and Boisson Sips then comment with your favorite part of today's episode you only have to make one comment but you have to follow all three accounts to be entered into the prize drawing i'm mentioning it now halfway through the episode so that you can potentially do it as you listen before we get back to the book club i'd also like to mention the artistic finance patreon page this is where you can support me and the show now, being a new father, I can use all the help I can get to move the production aspects of artistic finance off of my plate. Now, the more financing I have, the more things that I can get off of my workload, which helps this show become sustainable as a long-term and permanent resource for the arts community. Thank you to patrons for your monthly or yearly pledge in return, all patrons get a private podcast feed that goes directly into your podcast player. It also includes all bonus audio and early releases of episodes. Currently, we have early releases of our collaboration episodes with Theater Art Life, discussing navigating a career in technical theater and discussing a career in theater design with Broadway lighting designer, Jeanette osak If you would like to access those episodes, and if you want to support the work I'm doing, you can sign up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And now, back to the show. So Kit said, I have no idea what, what any of my fees are. Where do you find that info? And then she said, oh, you said it's difficult to find LOL. But I will say, I often find it by just Googling. If I can find the fund name, I Google, and usually Google has a result.
2: Oh, that's smart. Yeah. I mean, uh, Kit, if you log into your, um, your dashboard for wherever you have your investment funds, you can click on it. And they'll just be like, just keep really just clicking around and trying to find it. Like it might just be in the statements or whatever, but you'll see it listed out. It'll say like fee, and it should tell you like what that, like what the overall percentage is. Every website has it set up differently. And that's also why it's a pain. So if you have a couple, so when I was going through my careers, I didn't realize when you got a new job, you could just like roll in your 401k into like a next one. And then I kind of thought, well, isn't it good not to have all your eggs and all these you know, it's good to have eggs in different baskets. So I have a lot of logins right now. So if you have a few, like I do, it really is like a, could be an all day activity, but it's worth it. And I think, you know, some very good advice I was given was like, if you feel uncomfortable about money, spending more time with it and facing it and being around it, you'll actually feel more comfortable with it. And, and actually you start to like it. So None of those dashboards are designed very well, I don't think, but just going in there and playing around, you'll find it. I know that's like not the best exact answer, but that's what I do.
1: <laughs> yeah. And in, in the beginning, I didn't want to do my budgets in the beginning, especially when when I first started doing them and I realized how way off base from where I was. I grew up in really extreme poverty. I've always been very frugal. So I thought that I wasn't a big spender, but then when I, when I first got in and started looking at my budgeting, I was spending way more on the dumbest stuff that I just didn't realize. And so it was a lot more work than I expected it to be to kind of edit myself and, and re-evaluate where I wanted to put my money and what my values were. Most people think that they can't, they don't have another penny to spare, but when you really start analyzing it, you really do find that you can make money by moving, you know buckets around. So one thing that I did for myself is I called it finance Fridays. I still do it occasionally, not as often, but I, I, in the beginning, I did it every week just to force myself to like come to terms, but I would make it fun. You know, I would like take a bath and like, or a shower and like put on a bathrobe and like put on my slippers and pour some wine and sit down with my spreadsheet and sit down with mint.com and just like really try to make it a relaxing and enjoyable experience because Uh, you do have to do it. I mean, you choose your discomfort. It's you're either going to be choose your hard, as they say, it's either going to be hard to face your finances, or it's going to be hard later when you haven't and you have nothing to show for all your hard work.
2: And I feel when I do that weekly thing, too, it was diminished a lot now over time that I'm doing it so regularly, but you'll have the anxiety of just assuming the worst. And it's actually when sometimes you sit down, you're like, it's fine. It's not that bad. And now I know what to do. Like it's kind of nice. Just I, there's comfort in the honesty, and numbers don't lie. When you start budgeting or, or tracking where your expenses are going, you start to see where your values are in your life. And I would also say, too, like how you're saying, like moving money, sometimes. You say, oh, I'm actually spending this amount on, you know, eating out, but I I love food and this makes me happy. And then you just feel validated. You know, you understand when you're working hard and you grab that job, that gig, and you're like, this is paying for something that's important to me. It's like linking the value of your everyday to things in your life that you like to enjoy. And money is just a means of doing that instead of it being like this evil or scary or, you know, overwhelming Item in your life that you might not know how to control. Like you are controlling it, you just might not be giving yourself credit that you are.
0: I was going to say Occam's Razor. I think it's called Occam's Razor only because I've heard it on so many podcasts referenced, but I never actually knew what it was. (laughs) But yeah, if there's multiple solutions, choose the simplest one, which is tying into my life lately because Nicole and I, the last year or so, we have been saying, like, go with your gut. Like anytime there's something going on, we're like, just go with your gut. And I feel like choosing the simplest solution is often the same thing and this was like hit on so much throughout this book of like keep it simple keep it simple because sometimes when things boil down to like too simple i'm like all right there has to be nuance to the situation we like have to talk this out but but honestly with money it's like we had lisa finnichia who's an author and she was saying like the numbers don't lie it's like we're not going with the simplest solution here because it's easy it's an easy talking point it's like no the math backs us up that like very simple, like lower fees. Like that's as complicated as that needs to be. Like the lower the fee, the more money you're going to keep, the lower the fee, the more compounding you're going to get.
2: It's simple arithmetic. I mean, that's, there's math, all that math theory. When it comes to finance math, it's actually really simple arithmetic for most part. It's, It's not calculus. You know, it's, it's not really thinking of these very complex concepts. It's just like less is less and more is more. And, um, people don't trust that is why they get away. Like, you know, Amy was saying there's a lot of financial jargon and a lot of things to kind of distract you when you're trying to figure out saving and investing in your future, because people are just assuming that it has to be more complicated than it really is. Um, I actually, anecdotally, I, um, when I was really getting into the, so I would say I'm in the, the fire minded movement and, um, my kickoff was the book Financial Freedom by Grant Sabatier. I know that's not on your guys's list, but for le- next year, I would.
1: Oh, it's on the list. It's just the longer list. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah.
2: It's it's um. I have it here with me, and I've been doing it like every year. I'll reread it and like kind of re um, inundate myself with uh, the the principles there, and just kind of clean up my uh, financial hygiene based on it. So I got really excited about all this stuff and the two pronged approach of. The market investing and then real estate investing is a, a big key of that like kind of future wealth part. But I jumped the gun a little bit with the uh stock market investing because he talks actually, he talks about the indexing, he talks about Bogle in perfectly, I think, in six pages. Like he sums up like everything I learned. So it was interesting having read that for book first, and then going back to like the Bible of it all and being like, okay, like this is how the math is mathing, you know, this is how it actually works. But I had already trusted it as working because there's so many people who said this is the way to do it. I personally didn't need all that proof, but I understand why it's there, especially as you said, Amy, how he came up when nobody wanted to believe him. It's funny, someone told me about this investment, like stock class that they were in. She was someone I had worked with. She was older. Um, She showed me how she was making all this money in this class I had this weird gut feeling like I don't understand how these classes work because again, it goes back to like, if people know how to do it, then why would they teach anyone? Like they felt like there had to be some gimmick to it. But then on the other hand, it was someone I was trusting. I trusted and someone who also was showing me like, she's like, this is how my portfolio has grown. So I went to the uh, like introductory class and it was like in a conference room in a hotel. And I had this kind of, Kind of sleazy feel to it. I actually was judging. This is so funny. It's such an art, creative thing. I was judging the design of their all their marketing material, and I was just it just wasn't polished. <laughs> I was. I, I I think sometimes you can judge a book by its cover. It just felt. I was having this gut reaction, and then the way that the guy sold the program, it felt infomercially. But you know, she was there. Another person that I knew through her was there, and they all swore by it. So I bought in, I was like, well, let me just try it. I am trying to figure out this new world and maybe I'm wrong with my instinct right now. And I said to myself, I'll stop spending the monthly fee as soon as I see that I'm not making, as long as I break even, then I'll learn something either way. That was like my, my like fallback because they promise you start making money immediately. So what it was, was going into covered call writing I'm sure you've probably heard people talking about that as a way of making, it's selling, Um, it's buying chunks of stocks and then like selling it to someone and it may or may not sell, but they they pay the right from you to even buy it if it does hit a certain height, hit, hit a certain price. And it works if someone really understands the market and where it's going. But the whole crux of how all this worked is that you had this one man telling you, what stocks to buy. And so we were so beholden to him to tell us every week what call to write. And I was paying like a $500 hundred dollar monthly fee. And he would go on and on and say, oh, the mutual funds are fee you to death. The managers would fee you to death. And he was preaching what we're talking about, but then also doing it to us at the same time. So I got out of it. I mean, I was making money at first, but then I realized I'm not learning anything. It's not sustainable. Like I I won't learn anything unless I'm still in this class with this guy. Long story short, I was overcomplicating it. I was trying, it was something I didn't understand. I was trying to take a more complicated route. I was making these spreadsheets. It was every week I had to go in at Tuesday and like buy these stocks and trade them and all of that. And I wasn't loving it and it wasn't my life. I wasn't feeling it was a good use of my time and it wasn't. So, learning from that was just just keep it simple. Like just <laughs> set it and forget it. Invest in the index fund. You don't need to become, you know, the next wolf of Wall Street. Like it's it's fine.
0: <laughs> and also, we've in previous episodes like 2 years ago, we had a couple of stock traders on. They said they were stock investors, and I was like, "Oh, I I need to learn all about this." And then they came on and described like stock trading, and I just listening to them got so stressed out my brain i don't know if it's like the artsy the worry part like what but i'm like i cannot literally just like play with numbers for no reason at least passive investing i feel like okay i'm buying into companies and like in a way i'm helping them grow or at least there's like some actual value there versus just like anything that feels like money for money's sake for no reason like i'm not a big bitcoin person but like i'm not opposed to it because i see like there's an actual use there but like am i gonna go trade bitcoin like then that would be like completely like wrong. It's like, I don't need to be trading in and out of all these currencies. And then also like the, all of this with the the index funds, for some people, maybe it's just so easier. And I think also in the arts, it's a lot easier for people to hand off their finances to an advisor or hand them off to somebody because it's like, I'm not a professional in that. I'm not going to waste my time with it. I'm going to let somebody else do it. And I do think that is the right intuition, but this stuff really is simple. And it's like this if you just Google financial basics, you're going to get to indexing like right away. And so I, without having read this book for years, I've like known, oh yeah, you just put the money in the index. You let it sit there. You get the lowest fee. But as I've had this show, some of the guests have come on and said, you know, mutual funds, like they've explained mutual funds to me. Cause I've always been like, oh no, don't do a mutual fund. Don't do it. And I've actually had a couple people on who said, oh no, actually in certain situations, a mutual fund is good because one, there are some really low cost mutual funds and then XYZ and like some advisors will recommend certain ones. So I actually, before reading this or half reading this, I was turning around on mutual funds. I was like, oh, maybe it's, maybe they're like, it is okay. Like, cause in some way mutual funds are just the same, but then reading this, I was reminded like all the reasons on why I should like pause before I go into a mutual fund. The one thing that reading this took away was the tax inefficiency of them. I've always just been like, oh, it's the fee, it's the fees, it's whatever. But then pointing out the tax inefficiency, I'm like, oh, wow. So even if you had a mutual fund that was like the S P 500 and it was a lower fee than say a Vanguard fund, which would be impossible, of course, but let's just say it existed the tax inefficiencies of what the active manager, or even if it's like not a super active manager is probably going to negate some of that. So I, I sort of like put that, like took that away today to be like, Oh wait, yeah. Mutual funds are, I should proceed with caution very much. I mean, I don't own any, I don't know why I'm saying that.
2: <laughs> well, well, no, but it also could be the net again. It goes back to like what you don't understand. I'm not going to sit here and say I can give a case to or for uh, the mutual funds because I don't know it enough yet. And maybe at some point I do, I, I'm so busy in my career. And I feel like a lot of people can, res- can resonate with that. It's just, if you don't have time, start with what is simple and what's proven. And that's pr- It's for the common man, basically, as described by the book. And then, yeah, I'm sure it can't be completely evil, but I don't know. And it's like, don't overcomplicate it. I think the simplicity thing is the easiest thing to understand. And I guess, especially like you as a new dad, right? Occam's razor is probably like top of mind all
0: the time. So maybe mutual
2: funds later, like we'll figure this out.
0: (laughs) Well, and also like the risk thing, I think sometimes people look and see, oh, a mutual fund, there's an active manager in there. So they're going to find like the best dividend funds or they're going to find the funds. And like In a way, I know insider trading is illegal, but I feel like that's what we want out of mutual funds and companies like that, where it's like, we want their insider knowledge. Going with a company like that or going something with a higher fee, because you're like, it's going to be a higher return. I think that's a valid thought. But after reading all of this stuff, it's like, you know what, because of the fees, because of the compounding, because of the everything, and you were talking about the 7% return, like, yeah, sometimes it's going to be lower and sometimes higher. To almost get 7%, like, guaranteed like all you know almost like as 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 reliable as it can be like you're just you have just as good a chance of getting a seven percent return using an in indexing method versus using the mutual fund method
1: I mean honestly that's kind of how I ended up like trying to scream this from the rafters because I was the least person to I mean, I just came from like a really impoverished background and I was a really late bloomer and I had no financial IQ. I had no financial education. And then, um, you know, I was in my late 30s, I think, by the time I even learned any of this. And I kind of was just hitting my midlife and was saying, man, I'm going to be really in trouble if I don't figure something out. And I didn't have the money to hire a financial advisor, although if I did, that's probably what I would have done, because it was the same thing. It's like completely mystifying. I don't understand anything. I'm a creative. That's not my realm. But I didn't have the the money or the privilege to be able to do that. And so I just went on a journey And Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Paula Pants Afford Anything podcast were really the ones that catapulted me into being able to realize that I could understand it. And there were resources for me. And I mean, look, I, you know, grew up poor, was a waitress for a really long time and then was a starving visual artist for a long time and then got into lighting and staging and architectural. And, you know, but like all along the way, I never had resources. So for my journey to end up, I completely turned my finances around 180 and became an investor and a confident one where I understand what I do and my strategy is very simple. But that's why I wanted to share it, you know, because I just kept saying, man, seriously, like we say, if I could do it, anybody can do it because I just I didn't have any background in it. And I was really surprised at the beginning because, of course, the first place that I went was to my other friends that were still broke and in, you know, waiting tables and, you know, that are just don't have any resources either. And I said, Hey, I discovered this great thing and I discovered fire and I discovered indexing. And, but even people that like, I know and love that trust me, couldn't wrap their heads around it either, you know? And so that's kind of really the birthplace of the book club, because it's, if you, if you can just read about it, you don't have to make an action, but just educate yourself about it you know, you might find that it's more accessible than you think, and you might actually find a piece of hope to turn your situation around, optimize your finances. So I think that is one thing why I would say with this book that I 100% agree with is the simplicity and bringing it back to the simple. And if you can just understand one thing and make one change, then, you know, that's there's hope there.
2: Yeah, that knowledge is knowledge is power, you know, not to be cheesy, but it's true. And I think purposefully the finance world uses jargon because they don't want you in it. Like I dated a guy in finance. I did not understand what he was doing, you know, and it's, it, it's purposefully complicated. They use words for things that are like, oh, that just means this. And it's, and the literacy part of it, like, you know, I, um, I grew up comfortably and, and, and my, my family is very comfortable, but like, we just didn't talk about money. So even so, like not having that literally, just not even talking about it. Like I still had to figure it all out as myself. I mean, it's, and I was, I'm talking to like my friends and we've all been talking about it and possibly also just, you know, traditionally women don't talk to each other about money or people don't, aren't talking to women about money either. So we were all saying like, my girlfriend's just like, they're figuring out a lot of stuff on their own now or stuff that you know, their parents never talked about things and they're not doing well because no one, would, you know, they were overspending in the 80s and the 90s when ever, there was money everywhere. And now, they, now they're they like, we didn't save anything properly. And it's like, wow, why isn't this a school class? Like, why aren't we just, why isn't it simple? But I think it's because they want, they, the larger, uh, you know, uh, financial kind of industry. They want to make money off of you. They're not really trying to help you in the way like John Bogle is really was really being that pioneer for people. Um, And I just wanted to respond to Marissa's uh, question about that first step and the overwhelmingness of it. This book in its of itself, depending on how much you like to read math things out loud might feel overwhelming. But um, as far as just knowing what to invest, first, you want to take advantage of tax-advantaged accounts. And then after that, after-tax accounts. So If you have an employer that offers a 401k program, you want to, or any, even like HSAs, anything that they have that you can put money into that you can invest, you want to see how much of your money you can put in there. See how much, like what percentage, like how much you could save away and put it in that account. If you are self-employed, there are other items to do it, like a Roth um, IRA. And that's also, you want to, start investing money that you didn't already pay taxes on first. So you get the most bang for your buck. Then if, you know, once you, there are certain limits of like how much money you can put into tax advantage accounts. If you have more money to save and you wanted to invest, that's when you start doing not, you know, after tax, um, tax accounts. And it's really just figuring out how much money you can save to put into investing and then doing something like an index fund. But it, it's really just that simple. It's not, it does not need to be something crazy.
1: And I want to say to Marissa too, like you have already taken the first step by being here. You're educating yourself. You're starting to learn the vernacular. You're starting to learn the language, putting yourself with people that are working on it as well. That is a step. And that is actually the essential step is to become educated so that when you do decide what you're going to do, that you're comfortable with it, that you understand your risk tolerance and that you feel really good about what decision that you're making. the tax advantage accounts first is always a great idea, but also understand that even if you don't have an employer um, that offers that, if you are self-employed, you, you there's a 401k for you. There are Roth IRAs or HSOs, those are all the tax advantaged accounts. But for sure, just you know, keep on reading and learning because you know, we're all here saying that a financial advisor is going to cost you money, and none of us are financial advisors right? This is for education. So you have to be really comfortable with which, whatever step that you're taking. For me, like when I started listening to Afford Anything, anything podcast and reading Rich Dad Poor Dad and like reading all of these books, what ended up happening and the reason that I became comfortable was because I started to recognize the themes. A lot of these uh, financial independence experts and educators were saying the same things. That's how I learned about index funds because people kept talking about it, right? So, you know, then I said, okay, well, what is that? And then I'd go down the rabbit hole for that investment strategy. You're doing it. I just wanted to give you props because you're you're already started.
0: And I, and I just want to summarize what Karima said, because it was like, what do you do if you're overwhelmed with finances? You don't know anything about index funds or mutual funds, et cetera, you know, even if you listened to this or read the book. And the advice was really good, but I just want to summarize it really quickly, which was see what retirement accounts you have access to or see what tax advantage accounts you have access to and start there. Amy, should we wrap it up? I feel like I feel like I have more things to say, but we
1: I know it's hard to end. I mean, I just want to finalize on that because Marissa added that she's in a process of starting a new job. And so getting ready to go through all the retirement HSAs. Always keep in mind too that you know your salary isn't the only thing to negotiate. You can ne- negotiate your match you can negotiate your PTO. So any way that you can increase your income, at, you know, it's about that spend to saving ratio. Part of that is spending less, but part of it is making more. So whenever you're in a position to negotiate, don't leave money on the table. You know, ask for a higher salary, but also ask for money in other ways like PTO, retirement matches and things like that. Um
2: but yeah, Ethan, you're right, we do have to wrap. <laughs> It's such a pleasure chatting about this with you guys. It makes me—it's actually making me excited to go, uh, you know, finish my my portfolio rebalancing and all of that. And it's okay if you read something you like. Oh, I think I get it, and then like a couple weeks later, you're like, wait, I don't get it. Go back to it. Like, we all just kind of got into this because we had to, we wanted to. And I, I mean, I have no finance background, but I feel so much more versed in it because I just keep going back to the information, reading and talking.
0: And Amy, I just want to toot your horn a little bit, because the Financial Independence Book Club is your idea, and you're definitely a fire movement. Karima was like, oh, yeah, I consider myself sort of part of the fire. And I would just say I do not consider myself part of fire. But because of this, I am learning. So I just feel like we have a good representation here of people who are in fire, not in fire. Like, I'm not opposed to it. I just haven't taken the plunge yet. (laughs)
1: Awesome. Well, thank you. And thanks for letting us come on Artistic Finance and having a space to share and broadcast with everybody. And thank you, Karima, for coming on and sharing your journey and your book review. This has been such a great uh, episode. I'm so excited. I just want to repeat, we've got prizes. Uh, Janessa Harris was our winner for last month. And so we'll get in touch with Janessa for the gifts from Sovereign Candle. Collective and her tree has an incredible tag for an LD stay lit. So go for it, Janessa, stay lit. It's awesome. (laughs) Um, And then of course this month we're giving away a Boisson package worth $75. So make sure that you go and uh, we're going to put the post out hopefully tomorrow or this week. And so like the post, share it and, or comment on it and follow Bus on Sips, Utopia Dreamscape, and of course, Artistic Finance. And Ethan, take it away.
0: Yeah. So just a reminder that uh, we have a newsletter that goes out. Amy sends that out. It's the Utopia Dreamscape newsletter with all the information about Book Club. Um, And you can sign up for that at artisticfinance.com slash book club. And you can also just go to that link anytime you don't know. Um, For example, I may or may not have forgotten about Book Club this week. To remind myself, I just went to artisticfinance.com book club and was like, oh, hey, that's happening. If you ever forget what the book is or you need a link to it or you need a link to the Zoom for uh, attending, just go there. And then next month, so our May book is going to be The Dirtbag's Guide to Life, Eternal Truth for Hiker Trash, Ski Bums and Vagabonds, which, Amy, it's an interesting title. I'm interested. Is there financial advice inside of that book?
1: This is a, well, I'll go into the details of how this book came to be in the beginning of next month's club, but the, the, it is a perspective on on how to live your life and be prosperous. There is some financial in there, um, but it is also a different spin on how to how to look at it. So there's a little philosophy, I
0: guess. I'm very excited. I'm very excited. Um, and it's by Tim Mathis and Amy, am I also correct that Tim Mathis is the one who's presenting?
1: That's right. We have the author.
0: Wow. Okay. This book club is quite fancy, I must say. This will be our second <laughs> author that we've had. That's right. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. And the last thing I want to say is purely selfish. And I just putting this out to the group, am I allowed to win the prize? Like if I go on and like all these things and comment like a really clever comment, like, is it randomly selected? Like, is this allowed? Just because I would like the prize. That's all I'm asking.
2: I might know I might know a few people. We can do something for you. So. <laughs>
1: I don't think you can be the winner.
2: Yeah, but yeah.
1: you know, maybe maybe some friends will help you with some gifts.
2: Yeah, <laughs> uh, we'll, we can we can side sidebar about it. I, I love you know, obviously I love talking about it.
0: Just as, as somebody who has been drinking this way for a while and purchasing. I mean, I'm not opposed non-alcohol. to getting that
2: kind of gift
1: either. Yeah, day. yeah. <laughs> I, just,
0: I just think it's a great prize. It's a great. Yeah.
1: Prize. Yes. No. 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 It is. This is a great prize.
0: All right. Well, thank you, uh, everybody, for attending. It was lovely to sort of see people's faces. And uh, Amy and Karima, of course, thank you so much. This was like an awesome, okay, very dry book, but this book club was super relaxing, super fun, and uh, I took a lot out of it. So thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: That's it for this week's episode. What did you think about today's book? Head over to Instagram and leave a comment, which is also the way to win an attendance prize. To be entered to win some non-alcoholic spirits, follow Utopia Dreamscape and Artistic Finance and Boisson Sips. And leave one comment with your thoughts on this month's book. Find links to all those Instagram handles in the show notes. The deadline to complete that task is by mid-May. Thank you to Karima and Boisson for providing our prizes. A note for next month's book, We have an affiliate link at bookshop.org who partners with independent and local bookstores, aka places that I like to support. If you use our affiliate link, 10% of the sale goes back to Artistic Finance. So if you don't get the book from the library and you end up purchasing it, please consider doing so via our affiliate link, which you can find at artisticfinance.com book club. If you aren't into reading or the book club, you can also support my work by becoming a patron. Patrons make these shows possible and in return, they get a private podcast feed. If you want to join up, I truly appreciate it. And you can do that at patreon.com slash artistic My final thought for the day is to mention that Phantom of the Opera closed last week after 35 years on Broadway. Our previous guest, Cheryl Polankas, was a stage manager on the final performance. Congratulations, Cheryl and everyone else who has been involved in that institution. And with that closing, two previous guests of this show, Ken Billington and John Lee Beatty, are now designers of the longest-running musical on Broadway. That is the 1996 revival of Chicago, which is currently playing at the Ambassador Theater and has played more than 10,000 performances. Phantom was the only Broadway show that was older than me, so overnight, I am now older than every show that is playing on Broadway. That's it for today. Until next week, break a leg.
1: Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication
2: or rebroadcasting.